0: Thank you, Dirk, for reading on short notice. Our original reader, uh, Daniel Penner, is feeling a little under the weather today, so uh, Dirk read on short notice, and we're thankful for that. We had you turn to Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, and what we're going to do over these next few days, over the next two weeks, is take up a little mini-series in Galatians 4, verses 4 through 6. Today's sermon will be a little different than uh, how we usually teach here at Fellowship Bible Church. Um, But I think think you'll understand the spirit of it as we get going. And so what we're going to do today is fill out that phrase, for when the fullness of time had come, verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. When the fullness of time had come. and So we're going to focus on that statement. We're going to take today to unpack that, and we will out what that means. Let's pray and then we'll dive right into our text this morning. Father, would you give us grace to understand this passage? Would you give us grace to see your sovereign control of all of history? And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see how mighty and powerful you are. But more than that, I pray that we would see the great initiative that you took to redeem people to yourself, to call people out of darkness and bring them into light, to make them a chosen race, a royal priesthood, to build your family of God. That was all of your initiative and your doing and your control. We were straying far away from you and you ran to us and help us to see that now. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think one of the things your kids look forward to most, of course, is unwrapping presents on Christmas morning. Now, I think every family has a little bit different tradition, don't they? Um, I know some families like to open their presents on Christmas Eve. Some families like to open their presents on not the morning of Christmas, but later that evening. Others like to do a little bit on Christmas Eve, a little bit on Christmas morning. One thing that my family and I have done, we... We have usually one present unwrapped, so when the kids get up, they can play with that while um, their mother and I uh, caffeinate ourselves appropriately, okay? (laughs) But we have a three-year-old in the house now, little Joel. And Joel, as much as any other child, loves to unwrap presents. Um, I, I think... He above more than the rest of our kids, he likes to take his time opening presents. He kind of savors the moment of ripping the wrapping. He doesn't rip. He he kind of takes and kind of unfolds. And really, Christmas morning is going to be a long time if we don't break him out of that habit. I'm just thinking about that now. But I want him to just tear into it. But there's one thing that he always says when we say, hey, look at the tree. Look at all the presents under the tree. You know what Joel always says? He says, we have to wait till christmas because there's this fear that we're going to come into the room and Joel has unwrapped all the presents for everybody to see and so if anything is is taught him about the presents is that you have to wait until christmas or till whenever your family opens them in this passage we're told that the world had to wait the world had to wait a long while in fact before the very first Christmas morning. The Lord had the exact perfect time picked to send his son into the world. In fact, God didn't pick a time, God caused a time. God wanted the world to be a certain way before he sent his son into the world to accomplish the redemption that he had established in eternity past. And Paul, right here, is encouraging Christians, when that time came, God initiated, God sent his son. And so I want us to, like I said, unpack how God prepared the world for the coming of his son, and then that's going to really help us in our future uh, Christmas sermons. Let's get a little background of this passage in Galatians. Paul is writing this passage where Paul is writing the book of Galatians to... Christians, to Christians living in the region of Galatia. There was a broad region and there were as many as eight different churches in this region. And Paul is alarmed. He took the gospel to them and he's alarmed that they have fallen from grace, he says in chapter 1 verses 6 through 9. He says, oh foolish Galatians, that's a little later, It was, I'm, I'm shocked to hear how quickly you've changed from a gospel of grace to a gospel of grace plus works and he goes on to tell them that they're making a grave mistake and what is it that they've left what is the gospel of grace that, that or what is the the gospel that they've journeyed to away from the gospel of grace they've journeyed to a gospel that involves grace plus law grace plus works And what Paul is going to do in the rest of the book of Galatians is tell them, I know you want the law, but the law is not what you think it is. And the law itself actually predicts that we will be moving toward a gospel of grace. If you really want law, then you'll really want grace. And if you really want law, here's some of the other things you can expect. And so Paul tells them in Galatians 3.10 that the law has limitations. He says, don't choose this law because all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. If you want to rely on grace and works, if you want to rely on grace and law, then you're committing yourself to the entirety of the law. And if you don't fulfill the entirety of the law, which, by the way, is loving the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might, And if you fall short in that realm, you are under a curse. Curse. So Paul's warning them, don't go to the law. He says, run instead to grace because in grace there's great privilege. He says in Galatians 4, by faith people are made sons of God. The law enslaved us until this fullness of time had come. The law, like a schoolmaster, had brought us to Christ until God intervened and sent his son. So as I said before, now that we're on this passage, fullness of time, let's unpack that phrase. But remember, this all comes in the context of the gospel. Paul is saying, don't move from grace alone to grace plus law. Because God himself shows that in the fullness of time, he fulfilled the law. In the fullness of time, He abolished the law so that you could have just grace. Now, very quickly, in Galatians 4, so that we get kind of the understanding of the immediate context, Paul is encouraging those inside the church to keep yourselves in the love of God by building, praying, and waiting. And then he's going to give some encouragement to those who are outside the church. He says, I want you to help those who are doubting, I want you to help those who are slipping away, and I want you to help those who are, you know what, wait a minute, it's this slide right here, X that out, okay, just forget that ever happened, blank from your mind, The la- I see what happened here, I was looking at that, never mind, we're just going to move on, move ahead to God's preparation of Israel, okay, God's preparation of Israel, as I said, the fullness of time, what does that mean, when God says, when the fullness of time had come, Let's unpack that statement and understand what God meant by fullness of time. And we have three points for today, okay? Three points of how God prepared the fullness of time. The first point I want you to see is God prepared Israel. The next one is that God prepared the Greek culture. And the last one is God prepared with Roman rule, okay? God prepared Israel, God prepared with Greek culture, and God prepared with Roman rule, and we'll see all those in just a moment. The longest point is going to be the first, okay? My wife tells me sometimes that when the first point is the longest, you can be on the first point for like 25 minutes, and and she's looking at her watch going, man, we've been at this a while, and I say, point two. And she goes, oh, no. Um, so just understand, points three and four will be shorter, or two and three, rather, will be shorter, and point one will be the longest, okay? So how did God prepared the world for Christ through Israel. How did God prepare the world for Christ through Israel? Well, first, he gave Israel their charter. I have up here a passage. Genesis chapter 2, verses, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This is God speaking to Abram, Abram, the father of the Jewish race. And this is the beginning of their history as a nation. He says to Abram, who would later become Abraham, he says to them, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. When we come to the New Testament, in the book of Matthew, the very first words are, Jesus, son of Abraham. Son of David, son of Abraham. You see, God was promising right here to the person Abram that through his physical line would come a person who would be a blessing to the nations the world over. God says, Abram, I'm going to bless you individually. Those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. But I'm going to be doing something more broadly. I'm going to be doing something bigger in this world. Later, God tells Abram to step outside and look at the stars. Number them if you can. That's how numerous your offspring will be. God is going to make of Abram a mighty nation. But from that mighty nation will come one person in particular who will be a blessing to all the other nations. And that's in Israel's charter. That's their beginning. The whole purpose of Israel from the very start be a blessing to all the nations that surrounded her. The second thing that God did in preparing Israel was that he gave them a law. He gave them a law. You can read through that law. Genesis is part of the law. So is Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And this law had all sorts of different regulations in it. Some of them were for worship, which we'll get to in just a moment. Some of them were for civil affairs. Some of them were for how judges were to operate. They were how to install kings, how to live in the land, what God's heart was when raising up a people. But we're told in the New Testament that the law was brought into Israel's life to show them the limitations of the human soul. God gave a perfect law to imperfect people. And those imperfect people were unable to fulfill the law. And so for centuries, for centuries, 14 centuries, these people lived and tried to obey this rule. They tried to obey this law. And though the law was good and it was a blessing, and when the nation followed it, the nation prospered because God prospered the obedience to his will. The fact was the nation kept failing and failing and failing. And Paul says in Galatians 3.24 that this law was our guardian until Christ came. This law shepherded his people to the notion that they couldn't obey God in and of themselves and by themselves. That they needed something else. They needed somebody else. In fact, they would need a person who could meet the law perfectly when they could not. There's a third way that God prepared Israel for christ's coming and that was israel's worship part of that law part of the law that god gave was worship now imagine being an israelite all those years all those many centuries they started with the tabernacle and you guys know what the tabernacle was israel had this box that's what that's what it is uh, uh, the, the ark The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark is just the Hebrew word for box. And when Noah was told to build an Ark, it's just a really big box. And so, here in this box, they erected a tent around the box, and the box had angels sitting across from it, and people were limited to their access to the box. Only priests of a certain family could go in there, and only one person once a year could get access to the holiest of all. And these sacrifices, whether they be blood sacrifices of of animals who shed their blood, turtle doves and goats and lambs and oxen and you name it, whether they be drink offerings that were poured out onto the ground or wave offerings that were burned and consumed, whether it was a Passover lamb that was eaten by the people who offered it or A burnt offering that was burnt and completely consumed entirely. The writer of Hebrews tells us that those offerings had to be offered all the time, repeatedly. Let's read right here Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So not only was this law given to inform people, you can't ever be good enough, you're always going to fail, you're always going to break. So this worship was put into place to show that the repetition was never done, the shedding of blood was never complete, The priest never got to sit down. Folks, imagine living near the temple of Jerusalem. Now, I I don't know that I've ever done this, but I can can only imagine. They, They had a big altar in the temple courtyard area that was filled with hot coals that were burning all the time. And on top of those coals was a grate. And people would bring large animals. Large animals. The priest would slit the throat of the large animal and the blood would spill out on the ground and they would catch some in a bowl. They would flick it onto that altar, the horns of that altar, and then those priests. Now you guys who are hunters know this. A deer, when it's dead, is heavy (laughs) it was just as heavy when it was alive but it was helping you a little bit not that you ever got your hands on it but now that that animal's dead and gone man that is dead weight and those priests would have to take the legs of that animal and i'm sure one two three give it the old heave ho and the whole animal skin and hair and all would get tossed on top of that burning altar And there, the hair, and the skin, and the meat, and the bones, would all burn to a crisp. This happened many times a day. Imagine the stench coming from that place. Imagine the smell of constant burning hair and flesh. And it never stops. It never ceases. It's like the dog food plant down in Ogden. You can always smell it no matter where you are. And this was a reminder, a constant reminder. You can never be good enough. The prophets say it this way, though I were to offer 10,000 rivers of oil, Though though I offered you animals without number, would you be satisfied with that? No, you're an eternal God. And limited sacrifices will not appease an eternal God. And this, this fault of the people, and this repeated worship, prepared the world to receive the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world with a one-time sacrifice wherein he got to sit down. Now, God prepared Israel to receive the Messiah by giving them a king. He gave them a king. That's our next point. In Psalm 89.3, You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one, and I have sworn to David my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations well as we'll find out in the next couple of the next points there was a time when there wasn't a king sitting on the throne because of israel's disobedience but god goes on to later fill out that his true king his messiah would come and establish an eternal realm an eternal kingdom His kingdom will have no end. His kingdom will go from shore to shore, from coastline to coastline. His coming king through the line of David will have an everlasting kingdom. Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit down at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And Jesus asked the Pharisees, whose son son of David is that talking about? It's talking about the coming Messiah and god promised israel that there would come a king through david who would reign forever and ever who would make an end of our sins and god would deal god would god would use this person through this nation this king and this king through david would help prepare israel to receive jesus christ and as i said And point four, God was preparing the world through Israel's king. Number five, this king, this future king, brought them hope. This future king brought them hope. And I have up here Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. This is an important passage. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In the book of Isaiah, this is the Holy One of God. This is Yahweh's servant. This is the person who will come and be the anointed one, the Messiah. The one who would usher in this kingdom. The one who, according to Isaiah 53, would give himself for us. Upon him the chastisement of our peace was laid. He would be bruised and beaten and afflicted for our sins. And this person, through the line of David, would bring hope that he would set prisoners free, that he would give sight to the blind, that he would redeem people from their sins. And Israel's people were looking for this person. When you read those Christmas narratives and you find out that the people were looking for the consolation of Israel, they were looking for this guy the Isaiah 61 guy. When the disciples say, hey, could this man be the Christ? They're talking about this guy. When the pharisaical leaders ask this question that they don't mean, they say, tell us plainly if you're the Christ. What they're saying is, tell us plainly, are you him? Are you the anointed one? Are you this person on whom we put our hopes? Are you him? Jesus came and went to a synagogue. It's a Saturday, and he's in a place, maybe something like this place. We don't know. And the synagogue leader opened up an Isaiah scroll, and Jesus read these very words from Isaiah 61. And he told them, Today, this passage Is being fulfilled in your midst. And they loved it. They said, Oh, wow, what a Messiah. And then Jesus said, You know, there were many widows in Elijah's day, but he was sent to a Gentile woman. There were many lepers in Elisha's day, but only Naaman, the Gentile, was healed. What Jesus was telling them was, I'm not the Messiah you want, but I am the Messiah. I'm going to take this salvation, this setting free of the captives, this proclaiming the good news to the brokenhearted, and I'm going to be taking it to the Gentiles, And when he said that, the people who heard his words pushed him out of the synagogue and drove him to the edge of a hill and wanted to throw him off of it. But it wasn't his time yet, and Jesus passed right through them and continued to minister elsewhere. So God was preparing the world through Israel's hope of a Messiah. And then last, on this point of Israel which has been our longest point. The last of this point is that God was preparing the world through Israel's dispersion. Right around uh, the 6th and 7th century B.C., Judah and Israel, well, Israel before and Judah later, were so hopelessly sinful that God had to lift them out of the Holy Land and drive them away in fulfillment of what he said he would do. God said in his law, if you don't follow my laws, you will not keep the land. I will drive you from the land. They didn't keep his laws. Therefore, God kept his word and drove them out of the land. And the people of Israel were scattered to kingdom come. They scattered all over the known world. And this actually became the network of contacts that fostered the first church. Now, there are ancient synagogues all over the ancient world. I have a map up here, okay? Everybody look at this map. These are locations of known synagogues prior to Christ coming to the world. These are known locations. I've color-coded them a little bit. The yellow ones are in smaller cities, and these are, again, known archeological finds. The large green ones are concentrations of them. There's a concentration down in Egypt, and a concentration in Jerusalem, and a concentration over by Ephesus, and a concentration over in Rome. These are large chunks of synagogues where they had big influence these aren't minor towns either. Alexandria, Rome, Ephesus, Corinth, Athens. It reads like a who's who. The red ones are probable locations, but we can't confirm it with either scripture or with archeology. span But we know that Jewish people had spread out to uh, all different parts of the kingdom, all different parts of the Roman empire. And these were major cities in the Roman empire And it would stand to reason that they were there, that we find those synagogues in those red locations, but at later points in history. So do you see how God spread out his people prior to the coming of Christ? And it was that dispersion that gave Christian missionaries a stop everywhere they went in the known world today. Everywhere they went, they would stop at one of those synagogues. And these were people that already knew the word. Jewish people, back in this time, were actually quite evangelistic. And they had seen quite a few proselytes coming to them. Jesus even says, you send people way over across the sea to get proselytes. Jesus then says, and you make them twice a child of hell as you are. (laughs) He didn't mince words with them. But they were evangelistic, and they brought with them that law. They brought with them that worship. They brought with them that hope. They brought with them that scripture. And God dispersed them greatly. And that's what sowed the seeds for the first church. Now let's move on to our second point. Our second point. God prepared the world through Israel. And God prepared the world through the Greek culture. God prepared the world through the Greek culture. And Daniel, Do you guys remember the, the dream that Dan, that Nebuchadnezzar had and Daniel interpreted in Daniel chapter 2? There was the head of gold, there was the chest of silver, which were the Medes and Persians, and then there were the thighs of bronze. The thighs of bronze. Okay? This was the Greek Empire. And Alexander the Great was the man who spread the Greek Empire. When you look at the map now, it's almost impossibly big. He spread Greek culture from Greece to the east. And he spread it all the way over to what is now modern-day Pakistan. Past India, past Asia. He went way out there. And wherever he went, the Greek language took over. Greek art, Greek language, Greek philosophy. Alexander was tutored by Aristotle himself. Now, this is several centuries before Christ came into the world, but this language ended up doing the church a huge service. Paul could go anywhere in the Roman Empire from India to Brittany and preach in Greek and everybody could understand it. The New Testament was written in the language of Greek. The the stewards of the Old Testament prior to the coming of Christ, they were concerned that their people weren't understanding the Hebrew Old Testament. And so they translated the Old Testament into Greek. You may have heard that as the Septuagint, or sometimes in my little outlines I'll say LXX. That's the fancy way of saying the Septuagint. The Greek translation of the Old Testament. This was Jesus' Bible. Jesus read and studied from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. He quotes from it liberally. Not liberally in a negative sense liberally is in much he quoted a lot from it greek paved the way greek culture greek thinking greek philosophy it paved the way for the lord when he said when god says that when the fullness of time had come a big part of that was his fulfillment of daniel chapter 2 in spreading this language and philosophy and art across the known world so that the church could take advantage of it. There was one more step. There was one more step, and that's Roman rule. The world was prepared through Roman rule. Okay. Back to Daniel 2. We had the head of gold, the chest of silver, the thighs of bronze, and then there were legs of iron, and that was Rome. Now, Rome is an amazing place. It was an amazing thing the phenomenon Rome was so mighty and powerful militarily their soldiers were always mercenaries it was a it was a mercenary army and caesar would reward those armies greatly with citizenship or even with their own cities and he would supply his soldiers with fields and riches and honor and citizenship those that Rome took over found their rule at first to be intolerable. But generally speaking, Rome was benevolent. They wanted you to pay taxes. And they expected you to keep their rule. But if you kept their rule, they would be freedom-loving. Now here's the thing that Rome did, and it's this Pax Romana, this era of Roman peace. There were so many quality roads. There were five main thoroughfares. Rome protected their ocean trade routes. They were highly protected. They didn't let pirates roam. They didn't let people, they didn't let bandits lay siege on city roads. When burglars and thieves and armed resistance tried to affect Roman trade, They would send the army in like that to squash it. Do you remember when Ephesus was in the middle of a riot, their city officials stood up and said, if this keeps going, it's going to get back to Rome that we're rioting and we're in trouble. Because there was one thing that Rome did, and that was they expected their rules to be followed. And they did rule with an iron fist, which actually created freedom it created prosperity because you could own property without it at risk of being stolen you could manage roads and travel without getting jumped by bandits you could have a ship and send it across the mediterranean and not have it not without worry of pirates taking it over this insistence on roman rule and private property gave infrastructure that the church would take advantage of that the church was primed to use consider this rome's rule rome's laws were so universally followed that a man named joseph put his nine-month-old, 9 month old 9 put his wife who was 9 months pregnant onto a donkey and they took a two-day trip simply to obey Caesar's rules. God needed them in Bethlehem, and I don't think Joseph or Mary knew their Bible well enough to get there. So like a little pawn, God moved on the heart of Caesar to take a census. And so Joseph, ill-advisedly, Waited till the last second, put Mary up on this donkey, and off they went to Bethlehem to obey Caesar, who was obeying God. God was using the preparation of Israel, God was using the Greek language and culture, and God was using this vast Roman Empire to prepare the world for the moment Christ would come. And I have two applications I'd like to share with us now. Number one, our sovereign God neither waited for the right time nor prepared Jesus for the world. God is not reactionary. He wasn't waiting for the right time. He wasn't hoping things would come around. No, God numbered the days. God prepared the world and God sent his son at exactly his preordained moment. Caesar becomes just upon signing an administrative thing to do a census. Little does he know, little does he know, he is enacting the will of God. Herod tries to wipe out all the children, but Joseph and Mary flee. And wouldn't you know it? One of those big green stars that I showed you was down in Egypt. And so Joseph could pick up his wife and child and go down there and not even change languages, not even change trade. There would be Jewish people there. He could raise his children and nurture them in the admonition of the Lord in Egypt just as well as he could in Jerusalem. But he was farther away from Herod. God had prepared that. God prepared that. And there was a synagogue waiting for them the same God who controls these complexities, who controls these world movements, who controls these national affairs, he controls you and all that surrounds you. And what a comfort that is. God is never caught off guard. God is never surprised. The health diagnosis that surprised you, God knew was coming and has already put in place things to help you. The change of job, the news this year that floored you and sent you reeling. God was absolutely in control of that. Whether to move somebody into your life that needed to be exposed to the gospel or to move you to get you close to somebody who you need to help or can be helped by you. God controls things big and small and everything in between so that he can accomplish his will and his purpose in you and for you. And God gives us, God shows us the macro so that we can have faith in the micro. Number two, our loving God intervenes. Our loving God when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son. We love God because he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. When we sin, when we rebel against God, we run away from God. And God is the one who moves toward us. God is the one who seeks to redeem us. God is the initiator of his grace and mercy in our lives. God is the one who's moving toward you. God is the one who's rescuing, And God is eagerly intervening to save. And God is eagerly intervening to draw this world of sinners back to himself. God is the one who intervened. God is the one who brought redemption through his son. And that redemption is both personal and costly. He sent forth his son, his co-eternal, co-equal son. And he put him on a cross to die. And that was costly. God bore all the initiative, God bore all the costs, and God bore all the anguish for your sin. Because he loves you. And he's not willing that you should perish. So I hope that this kind of macro overview of how God prepared the world to receive his son, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. And Next week, we'll get into the rest of those verses and see what else God did as he introduces us to his great son. Father, would you give us confidence of your sovereign control over the affairs of men so that you can work your redemption in our lives? Would you help us to respond to your initiative. If there are any in here, oh God, today, who need your redemption, may they reach out and take it by faith. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name.